Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. G'day, all you tech-seeking funsters. It's time to come in from the cold, grab yourself a nice hot cuppa, and settle in for another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, with thermos in hand, fingerless gloves, and a tartan blankie across his knees. It's Matthew Dickerson. What's been on your mind this week, mate? I want to be like a newsreader. You only see the top half, so I thought the blankie was okay. No one can see that, but oh, hold on. I've this given is, it all away. This is an audio medium, so they can't even see that, can they? They can't see any part of it. So. Hey, look, it's been an interesting week this week because we've had, where we live, a boil water alert. And you kind of expect where we live in 2022 that you don't need to boil your water before drinking it. You just expect, you turn on a tap. That's a society of convenience, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Clean water comes out and you drink it and away we go. You just don't think that at some time you're going to have something coming out your water or out your tap that's contaminants in your water where you've got to boil it to get rid of them. Mm. So it seems so old-fashioned and so yesterday, but we do rely on that type of technology that's in our society in a whole range of ways. And just go back to when the Romans first started building their aqueducts, what a revolutionary program to bring clean drinking water to yeah. the, the populace. And um, yeah, the, so the health of that particular society started to pick up enormously because they had access to fresh water. Well, I think it's two things too, isn't it? It's fresh water and sewage. Once and sewage, you've got those yeah, yeah. two nailed in the society, then you increase the health of your society dramatically. So it does seem a bit old-fashioned. It seems a bit third world nation to be boiling our drinking water, but we've actually had a little bit of an issue in our household. We've got a zip tap that you just have on tap boiling water available to you. So if you want to make a cup of tea, there's the water, you flick the tap on, boiling water. Fast and easy. Yeah, fantastic. Who needs a kettle anymore? (laughs) That's exactly right. So we've been using that to fill up some water bottles and just some good old fashioned plastic water bottles and put them in the fridge. And my wife said, oh, the water tastes disgusting out of that. And I went, well, I wonder if it's because of the on tap hot water or boiling water, or if it's the actual vessel that we're putting it into. So we're conducting an experiment at the moment ah, as we cool. speak. The scientific process, I love it. Exactly right. So we've got a jug, boil water in a jug, traditional old-fashioned, boil it up, wait till it's boiled, wait till it starts whistling, and then pour it into a water bottle. We've got the on tap boiling water, and then we bought some bottled water from a supermarket, and then we poured that water into a drinking bottle. All three you same control, drinking yeah. bottles. That's fantastic, right. fantastic. Then we'll wait till they all cool down. This is great. You're going to do so well on your exam. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mr. Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought rather than put them in the fridge, because I think the coldness of the water when you take it out and drink it from the fridge probably just nulls or dulls your senses just ever so slightly. So we're going to keep them at room temperature. Then I'm going to do only a single blind test. I'm sorry, not a double blind test. A single blind test with my wife to see if it tastes better out of the bottled water, for example, or out of the jug. Or in fact, if the actual vessels, the actual water bottles themselves, if that's where the funny taste comes in. So well, Yeah, I was going to po- uh, posit that, that I think that cold water has is, is, got a lot less kinetic energy, so there's a lot less chance that it's going to interact with the molecules that are in the actual bottle themselves. Mm. Right? So, uh, um, so some of those plastic bottles aren't meant to carry hot water. Boiling water, we should look at that as well. Yeah. So the next part after this experiment will then be to do it into glass, something yeah. that is obviously hopefully not going to leach any things from the actual container into the water. Try the three again so we can actually narrow down where the issue is. By the time we've done all this, the boil water alert should be lifted, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a lot less fussy about drinking water anyway. There's a lot of people that'll hand back a glass of water and say, oh, that tastes wrong. and I'm, It's already in my belly by the time that happens. <laughs> right. 
Now, remember watching sport in the early 80s when the instant replay was a brand new thing? It was like a technological miracle. A revelation, no less. It was like reliving a highlight and you didn't even have to wait till the 6 o'clock news. It was awesome. Then someone in the early 90s thought the idea might make for a good way to help the on-field cricket umpires make their decisions. And that opened the floodgate. So now almost all professional sports use some sort of video review tech for referees to fall back on. Fast forward to the World Cup football in 2022 where FIFA will now track all players' bodies using artificial intelligence and try to remove any doubt when it comes to offside calls. Matt, how's all this going to work? It sounds incredible, doesn't it? And I remember I was actually watching a game the other day in between the drinks, oh, sorry, the, the morning and, and afternoon session of a test that's going on at the moment. They had a cricket match from 988, and there was a Sri Lanka versus Australia, and there was a run out there, brilliant run out, and the guy would have been at least half a metre out, maybe more. And the on-field umpire mm, stared, stared, not out. And you could see the TV <laughs> um, uh, commentators talking about it going, well, it's so clearly out. And yeah. we could see it at home yeah. watching it. But the players, and they kind of knew it, I reckon, even the guy running probably he saw the stumps shattered while he's running half a metre out still. <laughs> but he's not going to give himself up. Well, most players don't. So that was when I think they started thinking about it. Yeah. And so 92 was the first ever, or they started in 1992, 1992 was the first ever run out given by the third umpire, the TV umpire, Sachin Tendulkar was the first player ever there given out. For, for all the legendary status of Sachin and all the brilliant career that he had, is one little thing that he's got there as a little footnote on history as being the first ever player given out by a third field umpire. And as you said, now tennis where Wimbledon's just finishing up at the moment, so you've got Wimbledon and you've got... I actually love when they do it in the tennis and when a player calls for review. and They could just give an instant answer, of course, but yeah. there's a bit of drama when they yeah. show the slow motion image, it's not the real ball of course, no, it's the, it's the cartoon style CGI, image yeah. Yeah, of this ball coming down and close to the line, the whole crowd's ooh and then <laughs> hits the line or doesn't hit the line. So it it's very you. public isn't oh, it? Oh it is, very, a bit of tension yeah, and drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then no one questions that, no one says are you sure about that? Can I see the software behind that to see exactly how that happens? So yeah. anyway, it's fascinating. So with soccer, it's one thing that we haven't seen for really much. There, there was a bit in the last World Cup where they did show whether the ball went across the goal line. Mm. So that was one thing where, let's say, a, a, a goalie dives at the last minute and just saves the ball and pushes it back or kicks it out. Did it actually go across the threshold or not? And so they started using... It's almost like soccer felt like it was being left behind. It did. And it needed to like get more involved with this. What can we do? <laughs> How can we catch up to tennis and cricket and gridiron yeah. and all the rest of it? <laughs> but then this year at Qatar, they've got eight stadiums they're fitting out at the moment with this sort of technology. Now, the offside rule in soccer is something that, even if you have all the clear data in front of you, it's still up for debate about mm. whether that player was running onto the ball or not. And I'm not a soccer expert. I'm not going to even try and explain the offside rule. But basically, there's always debate. Every time there's an offside call, anytime I'm watching any soccer, there'll be 10 people debating yeah. about whether that was offside or not and giving 28 different reasons. So FIFA's taken on a biggie in terms of this one to try and use this for offside calls. So what they've done is they've put a sensor inside the ball. And I thought that was pretty clever for a start. So you can imagine, yeah. I think of a little ball that I might throw to my dogs, it's got a rattle inside it, so <laughs> I'm not sure how the sensor's embedded in the ball. It's obviously got to be suspended in some way, it can't just bounce around inside the ball, and it can't change the weight of the ball too much, you think. So but they can't have multiple sensors around the lining of the ball, maybe? I don't know. It could perhaps, be exactly perhaps. that, yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how they're doing the sensors, and then obviously there's a battery that's got to be inside there. So ultimately, there's mm. a sensor in the ball. Now that sensor relays the position of the ball on the field 
back to the sensors around the actual field 500 times per second. Oh, wow. And I thought, that's a bit of overkill. That's a fair bit. But then I did the numbers. The Guinness World Record for the fastest ever ball kicked is 129 kilometres an hour. Francisco Marin from Spain did that back in 2001. Right. So that's a fair speed. So that's about 35.8 metres per second. So then I thought, well... That's interesting. If we break it down to how many five hundredths of a second that is, how far can that travel at that maximum speed? It's seven centimetres. So you think, okay, 500 times a second, it probably does need to be that much. Now, that's the fastest ever ball, but I'm sure soccer players in general matches still kick it fairly fast. So every seven centimetres at most, you know the position of that ball. Yeah, it's going to improve the resolution of of, um, your your measurements. Yeah, that's right. But then you've got to track it against the players. Just the position of the ball can help you with the goal line, for example, but it doesn't help you with offside call. So then they've got 12 cameras around, I said, eight stadiums they're using. So they've fitted out all eight stadiums in Qatar with 12 cameras. And those 12 cameras then have 29 tracking points on the body of each player. Oh, right. Yeah. So you've got to wear all these stickers all over your body. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're doing it with Little some artificial intelligence <laughs> rather than just stickers there, but the same concept, I think. Yeah. And then they combine all that data so they know the position of the ball, at maximum of seven centimetres apart. They know the position of the players that are on the field with all these tracking points, and they combine all that, put it through some AI, and then if there's an offside call that the AI thinks is correct or an offside call, it sends it down to the third umpire, if you like, who then reviews it very quickly and then sends the call to the on-field umpire. After all that, FIFA have said, but it's still the on-field umpire's call. Now, it'll be a brave umpire who would yeah. say, forget the 500 times a second, forget the 12 cameras, forget the 29 tracking points, I reckon he was right, <laughs> or wrong, or whatever. I don't know. I reckon they're making a rod for their backs here, because we've seen, like, it's happened quite a bit in rugby league, where uh, the VRA comes back and uh, it's, it's a it's a dodgy decision. There's been a lot of complaints about it. Yeah. And I just reckon they're making a rod for their backs. They're trying very hard to get this perfect situation. Yep. I think we just... Look, I'm all in favour of going back to the 80s and just throwing up your hands and saying, well, referees call, whatever. <laughs> when the referee, I was always taught to play the whistle yeah. and, uh, and let the referee make the call. And if you don't like it, you're allowed to grumble, do it under your breath, but go back and take your position and get ready for the next play. Well, I, I still claim back in the 80s that I won our semi-final cricket match in third grade with a oh, six. Here comes the story, yeah. And and of course, we were down to the last wicket, we had one wicket left, we had the scores tied and so I'm facing and I've gone, okay. Everyone's on one, the edge of their seat. One run. That's all I needed. But of course, you see a bouncer come in. You've got to be the hero. Yeah, so I've, I've done this beautiful hook. And, and again, as I'm telling you the story, it was a six, James. It was a six. <laughs> a fielder stood. We used to have logs on the boundary. Right. A fielder stood on the boundary and took the catch and then jumped back into the field of play. So I still argue that he took the catch while he was on the actual log, yeah. which means it's a six. That's a six. In the field of play, and he had to would have had to have touched the ground before he took the catch. He said he claimed the catch. So the umpire on the field, who's fifty or sixty meters away from the boundary, <laughs> went, uh, "You're out." Uh, so again, that sort of thing. What do you do? You threw your bat at him. And <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, assault charge is still pending, but you do exactly what you said. You go. Grumble, grumble under your breath, and you walk off. As and it you turned didn't call out, for the video replay? Well, I did, but no one knew no. what I was talking about because <laughs> I'd gone 30 years in the future. <laughs> but the thing is that you, you're right. You just learned to accept the call. In that case, it was okay because 
we actually finished higher on the table, so we still went through to the final. So it was okay with the scores oh, tied. I didn't know that at the time. I was still pretty annoyed. Still, that yeah. I just it's all about to win the win. It's all about the moment. That's you right. Won that moment. Exactly right. So you're right. You kind of learn to accept it, but but that's okay. We were playing third grade, and if we made the final or not, we were still going to have a couple of beers after the match, and yeah. that was the end of it. But I also understand that when you're playing professional sport for your country – a bad call can make or break a career. You oh, get given out early that. in an innings or you make some bad call. I mean, Wimbledon at the moment, the Aussies have just won the doubles final. They were facing match points in the first round of Wimbledon. Mm. So they could have been knocked out. Now, imagine if they got a bad call in the first round yeah. and one of those match points got converted to a win for the other team or mm. the other doubles other, pairing. Yeah. And that's it. They didn't make it past the first round. And we go, oh, well, good on them. They went and played the first round. End of story. But now they've won. Wimbledon, they've won the final, which is fantastic, but a long way from losing in the first round. Yeah. Again, when it's professional sport, when that's what you do for a career, I can understand why you might want to have every possible ability to get it right. Yeah, and, and I know you're, uh, when that happens and the wrong call's made, you're really answerable to one really angry person there. <laughs> but with the amount of betting that occurs, yeah, you're now answerable to millions of people with Billions of dollars on these things. Um, And, yeah, I tried to have a conversation about this with my brother-in-law. I I like the old days where the referee was allowed to make mistakes, but not. (laughs) Yeah, you could yell at the referee and be cranky with him. But he blew his whistle and that was final, right? The the referee's call was final. Uh, Yeah, people, there's no going back to the old days. No, no, that's right. So keep an eye on the World Cup this year. I'm going to be fascinated to watch the technology and see how it develops and see if there is some howler where someone says, well, obviously the AO got it wrong. The on-field umpire should have been the intelligent one to overrule that AI decision. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It also interrupts the flow of the game. The game's got momentum and they stop and they want to check the video and they want to check what the technology's got to offer. And so you sit around and wait for two, three, four, five minutes, wait. And I'm convinced sometimes when you see a player make a captain's call, then you just think they're exhausted and they just need any reason for a quick break. They do a captain's call. They know it's wrong, but captain's call, let them go and check and then, okay, catch our breath, guys. (laughs) Right out, let's go. Okay. Oh, we didn't get that one right. Okay. On we go again. Now, have you ever fallen foul to a pothole in the road? Back in the days when rear spoilers were important to me, my racy little Mitsubishi Lancer Coupe collected a crater the size of Mount Kilauea on Anzac Parade in Sydney after a major storm, and the jolt caused a flex that split the spoiler from rear left fender right all the way across to the right side. So I was devastated, and it forced me to redefine my priorities in automotive gimmickry. But Matt, the engineers at Tesla are aware of the plight of motorists like me, and are adding pothole scanners as a feature. They'll adjust the suspension while you're driving to avoid damage to the car when you're going to hit a pothole. Matt, this seems like the stuff of fantasy. It does, doesn't it? And I'm just interested, James, so it wasn't a carbon fibre spoiler, obviously. No, it was just fibreglass, and it it obviously just gave it a bit of a rattle, and that was enough to snap it all along the line of the whole thing. And... um, and ever since, I've not been a fan of rear spoilers at all. And, of course, the difference it makes when you're driving around the streets at 40 kilometres an hour is about <laughs> <I> zero. <know. laughs> but, but it looks good. It looked so good back in 1995. <laughs> and, right. um, yeah, anyway. So it is interesting. <laughs> I do remember talking about some automotive technology years ago. And I actually said to an automotive journalist, why don't they have scanners, cameras, some type of device in front of each wheel on a vehicle? And then as it detects 
a rising or lowering of the road in front, it can automatically move that suspension. So you try and create this perfect ride where the car stays perfectly level and this suspension is moving the wheel up and down as it comes along. So you can drink your <laughs> cup of tea or whatever <laughs> that's right. without spilling any without down spilling your front. That's right. Now, I was told for about 28 different reasons why that wasn't possible and I accept that that seems a little bit of a fantasy land, but we're almost at it with this new concept from Tesla. So with Tesla's, in particular the Model S, they've got air suspension, the Model S and the Model X have both got air suspension, and you can do cool things with that, such as set a certain speed. When you get to that speed, the suspension lowers, so it gives you a more aerodynamic vehicle. So when you hit 100 kilometres an hour, for example, lower the suspension, more aerodynamic. Or if you go to an area that's got a steep driveway, you can make the suspension higher and geotag it. So every time it comes to that same spot, it says, oh, James has been here before. I better raise the suspension because he told me to raise it once before. I'll do it every time from now on. That's so cool. It is, isn't it? Combination of that geotagging along with air suspension. This latest idea, though, is absolutely brilliant. We do have different road surfaces and some of those road surfaces are less than ideal they're not racetrack surfaces as we drive around the roads on our or, or the various surfaces we have in our roads so you do hit the occasional pothole and i know when i ordered my model s in particular i looked at the 21 inch wheels and speaking to tesla at the time they said well out where you live probably a few rough roads we'd go the 19 inch wheels because you've got a bit more rubber between the actual rim uh. and the road rather than the 21 inch wheel which has got a slightly lower profile tire so i went the nine inch rather than the 21 inch based on that alone but this new feature you've got cameras in the tesla already they're scanning the road for a whole range of self-driving components and obviously when it's scanning the road you can see what potholes are coming up or what large deviations are coming up so now it'll scan the road in front and it will actually change the suspension settings very quickly for any of the wheels where it sees a suspension or a pothole coming up to actually make that ride better for you. So you can imagine you're driving along and it sees a pothole coming up. Well, it could do two things. It could actually lengthen the suspension ever so slightly on that so it's got more travel and then also just stiffen that slightly because you don't want to have the suspension bottoming out. The whole mm. idea of the suspension is to make it comfortable for you, but also so you don't crack the fiberglass spoiler on the back of your vehicle. Because <laughs> or dent your rims or anything like that. All those sort of yeah. things, that's right. So if you just stiffen up the suspension ever so slightly, then as it hits that pothole, it's less likely to bottom out in the car, less likely to send a jarring feeling through to you, less likely to do any damage to the vehicle. So it does sound absolutely brilliant. Now, I haven't had a test to, sorry, I haven't had a chance to play with this yet, it's actually just an automatic update, as Tesla does with their over-the-air updates. There'll be a new feature set that comes out. So this is the uh, update 2022.20 is the latest update for Tesla vehicles. By the time people listen to this, it might be a newer version than that. But that's the one that will have that feature in there where you can turn on that feature in your settings on screen. Wow. Yeah, so it sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? <laughs> that is. It's amazing. And um, yeah, I just wonder what the next thing's going to be. Well, yeah, it is. It's interesting because part of the thing that I, uh, you and I talk about regularly is coming up with the new ideas is probably just as hard, if not harder, than implementing them. So mm. dreaming up what the next thing is with the available technology we've got at the moment and then saying, okay, well, let's hand that over to the other team who actually has to implement that. Our job is to dream. Our job is to come up with the ideas. Perhaps they could fill the pothole in before you hit it. <laughs> That's right. All right, in real Carry time, travelling at 100 kilometres an hour. <laughs> That's right, Carry, carries an instant set bitumen in your car with you. I like it, I like it, James. It's heavy, uh, <laughs> it's going to be cumbersome, but uh, we'll see what if that can actually happen. Hey, 
caught the Stranger Things bug yet. It's been a thing of several years now and amassed a cult following a little bit like the Game of Thrones phenomenon of last decade. TV watching has evolved and the common strategy now is to binge watch the first two or three seasons of a show a couple of years after the initial release of the first season, then hang on in anticipation for each subsequent season. The pressure on producers to satisfy fans is enormous. So imagine the devastation and uproar when Netflix Netflix crashed immediately after Volume 2 of Stranger Things Season 4 was released. Matt, I'm picturing riding in the streets uh, and, um, and huge barricades made out of flat-screen TVs and people just losing it over uh, over this Netflix well, crash. Well, if you, if you watch some of the social media commentary, they did lose it. It was if someone had Bananas. chopped off their left arm or they'd <laughs> taken away their firstborn child or something yeah, terrible. hanging out for it, and if it's delayed at all... Mm. That's right. Now, Instant we, gratification. That's what we that, need in 2022. Well, absolutely right. Now, we did talk last week about Netflix introducing their paid scheme. So yeah, if yeah. You're, or sorry, your advertising scheme. So again, if you were on the advertising service, the advertisers might be very happy because there might have been huge demand for advertising oh, in Stranger yeah. Things because it's popularity. But if you go back to the old, old days when we used to have free-to-air, I think it still exists somewhere, but people <laughs> may be still watching it out there. But if there was a huge event on, if there was some major show, the Olympics on or the Oscars, some thing that millions of people were going to be watching it, it didn't really matter because the free-to-air transmission just was transmitted. And all those antennas out there that are picking up the signal are picking up the signal regardless of whether you're watching that show or not. So it didn't matter Mm. if you watched that show or you didn't watch that show, the transmitters were sending out a signal and it was up to you to say, yes, I want to turn that on or not. So big events, huge broadcasts, lots of people watching, no difference. When we move to the streaming era... This is the really difficult part because we've now got a couple of things. We've got the bandwidth to all of our homes. Now, Netflix doesn't control that, obviously. We've got MBN, for example, most of Australia that can use MBN, or you might have been on your mobile phone, 4G, 5G network. So there's a potential bottleneck there because you've got a, a limited, not an unlimited amount of data that can be sent down that. But more importantly, when you're a streaming provider, you've got to have your server infrastructure, your distributed server infrastructure, have the ability to serve out those requests. So everyone sitting at home Mm. turns on their device, they want to watch Stranger Things, and then those requests are going through to some server somewhere, server farm somewhere, that are then having to send out that information. And so it does become more difficult when you have more people requesting at the same time. So Netflix said, launch is on this time. You can start watching the new season of Stranger Things, all the build-up. Kate Bush has hit number one with running up that hill. All this hype over this program. So what do you expect? Everyone's going to tune in, and they want to tune in (laughs) when it's launched to then binge as much as they possibly can. But with all of that, The risk of spoilers is too great. If someone else gets to see it before you... That's right. Imagine the next day at work... You have to go into hiding. ...someone talking about Stranger Things and you not being up to date with the latest thing that happened. So the old FOMO would kick in severely. So this is what happened. And then, as all these people tried to stream, it just crashed. So it just got to the point where you got an error message on screen that said, network error. Now, that didn't tell you whether it was your streaming service, your internet connection, what it was, but more than likely, it was Netflix's server not being able to cope with the demand. Mm. And I'm sure they wargamed all this. I'm sure they said, right, we're going to have a few people watching this show. Let's make sure we have enough capability to send out all the information. And they can ramp up. One of the great things about having your server infrastructure the way I'm sure Netflix is set up is that you can bring on additional servers for a big show to be able to make sure you can meet that demand and then you can 
turn it back down when you don't need that same demand. But obviously they just didn't get it right. They were mm. surprised by just how many people were trying to watch it at the same time. <laughs> yeah, so anyway. Lesson learned. Thank you, makers of Stranger Things. That's, that's sorry, right. of Netflix, I should say. Yeah, but I think the thing now is, obviously you can watch it now, that's fine. It's not that same influx. But I think in the future, they'll probably do a staged announcement or oh, in right. one particular country or one particular time zone or they might even do something where they'll say in your local time zone it's going to launch at 5pm and then that would be a, an effective mm. way to have it across the world at different times to sort of spread that demand out without you realising that you're behind New Zealand which is always <laughs> a bad thing. <laughs> Curse them and their um, further east geography. That's thought uh, we make too much of a big deal about the internet and messaging scams. How's this, folks? The ACCC has estimated $2 billion was lost by Aussies just last year alone to scams. Are you confident that it'll never happen to you? Matt, what are we going to do? The figure is enormous. It is getting out of hand, isn't it? Absolutely out of hand. $2 billion. That's a lot of money. And that just makes me feel like, oh, how am I being scammed without being without even knowing right. it right now? Why am I missing am I, out on this? Am I being scammed? <laughs> <laughs> no, my worry is, am I being scammed right now and I'm not doing anything? That's right. Yeah, if and, I, and if some I people clicked on something like yesterday. Anyway. Yeah, I'll, but I'll some people know. are exactly right. And we did do a scam story last week about the mum and dad scams. And mm. so there are different approaches, different methodologies. Romance scams are obviously a big one. In fact, I only read a story this morning about a situation where a lonely woman happened to be a CFO of a large company. She was targeted deliberately because of her position in that company. She ended up sending some scammers several hundred million dollars oh. all in the name of romance. Oh, and wow. they're good. When you read the story, it's yeah. just fascinating how good they are at actually coming up with this. But if I, if I go back to this story, so the bulk of the losses of the $2 billion were investment opportunities and mainly around cryptocurrencies. So I know we give mm. cryptocurrencies a hard time, mm. but deservedly so. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the thing here is it's not so much there, – there are different angles they approach. And this one here is really the angle of greed. You can make some quick money without having to do anything. It sounds too good to be true. Well, that means it probably oh, is. <laughs> but people have obviously invested, in inverted commas, in these various scams and they've paid lots of money because they've been promised – or they've seen evidence, in inverted commas, mm. of great gains that people have made. And they're really good at creating fake websites. People go and look at their investment. Oh, look at that. I made 20% last month. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. I'll put some more of my money in because this is such a great investment. I'll pull it out of those safe, boring ASX investment funds that are only giving me 5% return. I'm putting these ones that give me 20% per month. Gee, I wonder how they're doing 20% per month. doesn't matter. I'm going to put my money in there anyway. Right. Let's not think about it for too long. <laughs> this is too good to be true. That's right. So the that $701 million was lost in those investment opportunities. $227 million are in the redirection scams. We've spoken mm -hmm. about those before where someone sends your uh, legitimate-looking invoice for goods that you legitimately purchased, but the bank account details have been changed. So yeah. that's a fair chunk there. Uh, there was another uh, $142 million is the romance scams that I talked about. So these are just in Australia. That one, a couple hundred million was someone in Thailand. So they're all pretty scary in terms of what they do and how they do it. And we've said it before, just keep an eye out on things. If you're a bit older, you're more likely to be scammed. So people aged 65 and over report the highest losses. Men lose money on scams, 
but women report more scams. Mm. So and maybe that's a bit of male ego that mm. not all men report their losses because they're a bit embarrassed about it. Someone tricked them. It almost threatens or questions their manhood because yeah. they were too silly. And again, sorry, I shouldn't say that. They're not too silly. The scammers are too clever that trick someone and then for the male ego, that's a pretty big hit. So that's yeah. a, a bit embarrassing. So it is a bit of a worrying trend. When you see some of those things happening, it just you just have to sit back and go, how do they do it? And again, exactly as you said, surely it wouldn't happen to me, but wait up, has it already? Are there yeah. things that... We, we all have weakness. Uh, there is there is a chink in your armour somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And it, and some have more chinks than others, but you only need one little chink in your armour. It doesn't matter how strong your armour is, there's a weak point there, and that's what they're going for. They're, they're, they're fishing for that weak point, whether yeah. you know, you're stressed at work, whether you're a bit tired, whether uh, you know, you're lonely and, and looking for, for companionship or whatever. They'll find that chink and they will prize it open um, and they'll... Take you to the cleaners. Yeah, and I remember in one of my businesses several years ago, there was a shortage of one particular chip that we needed. We used to build computers in that business. And so there was a particular shortage of a chip. And my staff member managing the purchasing processes there was always looking around for different chips and we could finally get some sometimes or a bit dearer. And he stumbled across a site one day that had the chips that we used, that we needed all the time, and they were at normal market prices, not at the inflated prices. And he went, oh, fantastic, I finally got... So he bought not a lot, but a couple of thousand dollars worth, but of course they never arrived. And so that one there, when we analysed that... We went, wow, that was really clever. This person Mm -hmm. understood the industry well enough to know that this particular chip there was a shortage for. They knew the sort of price you would pay. They knew that someone, if it was really cheap, you'd say, no, that's obviously a bit dodgy. If it was way overpriced, they wouldn't sell any. But they just tried to sell it at market price and had conversations with my staff member about it. And again, deposit the money and, of course, nothing ever happened. So it is so easy to get there. And in that one there, I mean, I didn't, you know, I wasn't too angry with my staff member because when I looked at it, He'd done everything right. He was trying to secure the right product for the business to keep being able to trade effectively and just very sneaky the way they do things. Yeah, look, and uh, and it's oh, look, uh, sharing a, a similar sort of circumstance for myself. We had a bit of troubleshooting that we needed to do with our NBN, uh, with our... Um, um, yeah, with our internet connection. And so I contacted Telstra and we troubleshooted and we worked it out and everything's peachy now. But I got a call back a day later to do a survey and they just needed to confirm my details. <laughs> and so that meant that I needed to uh, you know, give a couple of personal details. And as I was giving them out, I was thinking, oh, are you for real? Are you the, <laughs> are you the guy that I, you know, that I would like you to be or someone else yeah. on the other end of the phone? And um, I rolled the dice on that one. <laughs> um, and look, uh, you know, I've still got some life savings left in my bank account. So, um, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit hopeful. There was another time where I couldn't get my printer to work and I had to contact the, the printer company. Yep. Um, and I ended up talking to a guy from overseas and um, – and he said, look, I'm going to need to take control of your laptop right now. Do you mind if I take control of your laptop? And so, <laughs> bang, I'm watching my mouse being driven all over the screen and I'm thinking the whole time, no, no, I contacted, contacted this guy <laughs> using the details that I was given. I'm sure this is okay, but it's so disconcerting yeah, when that is, stuff is happening. Yeah, especially when the first site they go to is banking site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we, we live in an era of suspicion. We do. Medical monitors feature regularly in our topics here at Tech Talk. For companies producing these devices, the trick is to make them as effective 
and unintrusive as possible, so it makes sense to pack whatever medical tech you can into wristwatches. In an age of pandemics, the Apple Watch Series 8 will now have a fever detector included within. Matt, this is the sort of thing that could be a big step towards slowing infection rates for sure. Yeah, and I've got to say, allegedly, because Apple obviously don't reveal what's coming in their new products. Oh, sorry, yeah. Apart from it's all alleged. leaking it to journalists who then have to say the word allegedly in front of everything. So Because <laughs> they want to make the announcement in their normal September announcements that they have to say all these wonderful new features. And everyone goes, yep, knew about that, knew about that, knew about that, because you've already leaked it there a few months ago. But this is an interesting one. Having watches now, the things that they can do, ECGs, they mm. can do heart rate monitoring. They can now, I think, when the Apple 8 is announced, I think they'll now be able to have the ability to check your fe- for fever. Now, it's not going to be entirely accurate as I can work it out in terms of your actual temperature, but it will be accurate in terms of a change in temperature. So it may not say uh-huh. that your temperature is absolutely 36.8 degrees Celsius, but it will know that it thinks you're at 36.8, which, you know, might be plus or minus half a degree. But then if it jumps to 37.5 or 38, or it'll go, okay, I know I record James's normal temperature, this temperature, mm. and now we've had a certain variation. Put an alert on your phone, put an alert on your watch. And then, as we always say with these, the trigger then is to go and see some health professionals that have studied your body, or maybe not your body, but bodies for some period of time, many years, and they don't rely on a watch to tell them what's going on. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but it's, it's a, the signal to do a double check at least. You might have right. a digital thermometer at home or you can do a more accurate check perhaps. And yeah. That's exactly the point, to go and check those things. This is a trigger. This is something that says, hold on, something isn't right. Go and have a look at this, yeah. and then you do that with some professionals. Or well, perhaps even just lay low for a little bit and just Maybe. see how things go. Maybe that's yeah. right, yeah. And that's going to slow infection rates. I can't come in today, boss, because my watch, my watch told said, me. <laughs> said not to. Whoa. There's but a can of worms right there. It's quite fascinating, isn't it, what we've got built into our wearables. And wearables, we've got other wearables as well, not just watches, other things we can put in, graphene, tattoos we've talked about before, yeah, of course, yeah. so other things in our bodies. But we're monitoring so many things on our bodies. We're going to be living to 200 soon, James with mm. all these things monitoring and catching all these things early. And I think that's the thing with our bodies. If we can catch things in our body early enough, we usually can do something about it. Most often when it's drastic is when it's too late and then the treatment is going to be worse than the actual problem you've got in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I'll look forward to uh, more from that front too. Gathering data and performing maintenance work at the Snowy Hydro plant is a mammoth job, so it makes sense to enlist a little help from perhaps man's best friend. Why not? We train dogs to support customs officers, police and military, and dogs have been involved in search and rescue operations for over 100 years. But gathering data and performing maintenance in a major industry like the Snowy Hydro scheme needs something a little more. Matt, this looks like a job for a robot dog. Yeah, now we're talking. I think the other thing is with some of these maintenance that's happening is it's probably a bit boring too. Mm. And trying to get humans to do boring, monotonous sort mm-hmm. of work is tougher and tougher. Trying to get humans to do any work at the moment, it seems, yeah. in our workforce, our current employment scenario, it seems like every employer is screaming out for employees. We've talked about Spot the Robot Dog before, built by Boston Dynamics, and Spot the Robot Dog is what I would call a chassis that you then add on things that are relevant to your particular line of work. So we've talked about it before, you might get bomb disposal spots so that if 
he gets it wrong if he cuts the red lead instead of the green lead because everyone knows that you cut the green lead. Mm. So if he cuts the wrong lead, then he blows up himself, which is still expensive, but at yeah. least not a human life. Involved. But when you've given him a name like Spot, you're like there's there's that the human connection. So even when a mm. robot dog gets blown up, you know, little piece of <laughs> that's right until you get another replacement. <laughs> <It's> identical. <laughs> but so there's different things that are built on the Snowy Hydro scheme does have a range of maintenance work that needs to be done around, it's a fairly big area that it covers, mm. and so getting humans to go out and do all that is a bit monotonous, and you want to make sure it's all done right. So Spot has now, and this is only a trial at the moment, but Spot's being fitted out by a company called Emerson, who have basically set him up to go and do some maintenance, do some checks, and he can do some basic things. I'm saying he, I assume it's a he. Let's, let's go with <laughs> he for the moment, rather than it. So he can go out there and he can open doors, he can get into various parts of the various components of the Snowy Hydro Scheme, do those checks, and if he needs to do some basic maintenance, he can actually perform some of that basic maintenance. But, of course, as you can imagine, cameras fitted to spot. So mm. then someone back at a control centre, rather than having people go out to all these different spots, excuse this, the pun there, but going out to all these different areas, can actually have spot going and look at those. He's also got LIDAR, so that helps him get around, obviously just using LIDAR to, to scan and to basically look at where he's going and make sure he can move. And spot can work 24 hours a day. He's, he's not, he hasn't got a union on his side that mm. says, no, you can only work so many hours a day. He needs a toilet break and a lunch break. Spot can just be charged up and then on he goes and keeps going. The four legs on Spot makes him more stable as well. Having a two-legged yeah, I was robot, say that. yeah, uh, yeah. So four legs is a highly stable sort of structure. Yeah, yeah, that's Sorry, right. But other than bipedal, yeah, that's right. If you if you do have someone that's a, a two-legged robot bipedal, then there's a lot more technology that goes into keeping the robot upright and stable rather than a four-legged. Obviously, you don't have to dedicate so much energy and time to that. You can just get Spot to walk around. But Spot's great. We've seen videos of Spot being pushed away while he's trying to open doors and he keeps coming back yeah, to open the back. door. So there's different things that Spot can interact with and still actually do and his being job. being four-legged, it can also manipulate itself through all sorts of terrain as well. Yeah, yeah exactly right. So, yeah, better than having wheels, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, wheels, I think, in this particular scenario... Are limiting. Very limiting. And I think the, the main reason you want wheels would be to get from A to B pretty quickly if you've got a good surface. Spot wouldn't be quite as fast as a robot mm. with wheels, but it can get around all those Doesn't different areas. It doesn't have to be in yeah, that sort of situation. Right. I mean, Spot's even been used in Chernobyl, going in and being able to inspect things in mm. Chernobyl because you don't really want to send too many humans inside there because there's all the radiation around. So they're the sort of things you can put Spot into dangerous situations, put Spot into monotonous situations. We'll see more Spots around as time goes forward. As more and more companies, it's creating this whole new industry more and more companies are coming up with different things that they can add on to Spot to make it then a useful product they can sell. So they buy a Spot from Boston Dynamics, buy the add-ons from company A, B and C, and away you go. And we're going to be overrun by robot dogs. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Fantastic. Just as long as they know how to lick you affectionately on the cheek. <laughs> this next story is a bit like a storyline from a James Bond film. Cue the theme music in your head, folks. Drug smugglers in Morocco are now using unmanned, underwater drones to ship their contraband goods in large quantities across to Spain, across that strait of Gibraltar. Matt, here's a, cha a challenge for Spanish police that they didn't need. 
they didn't need and didn't know they were having. Obviously, there seem to be a lot of drugs that go across that little 15-kilometre straight mm. and they're picked up and the police have got better methods of picking them up. But this is a new method now and it just goes to show how far the technology has progressed. They actually did find some semi-submersibles that were being used across there at one stage. So you could still see a turret or something sticking above the water as the rest of the submarine sat below the water trying to sneak past authorities. But authorities went, hold on, there's something mm. over there in the water and it's not a shark fin, it's going to mm. look at that. And so they found some of those semi-submersibles. But this here was really clever. It was an underwater drone. The drug smugglers would drop it in on one side They'd fill it up with about 200 kilograms of drugs, drop it in on one side. It would be underwater, unmanned, not needed to be controlled. It was autonomous. And away it would go and get to a certain landing point on the other side where obviously someone would be there to collect it and take out the drugs. Because one of the important things here is that uh, if you're trying to radio control something or use any sort of EMR to control stuff, you lose the ability to control it effectively um, anything deeper than 30 centimetres of water. Yeah, well, you, so that's you need why to go they needed to, a turret sticking out of the water, I presume, before. Yeah, and you needed to go, obviously, those very low frequencies. Yeah. So the amount of data you can transmit to a device underwater is very low amounts of data with those mm. very low frequencies. So you're right, you don't want to have it completely underwater and then still try and control it because you're just not going to be able to do it. Yeah. So it needed to be autonomous to be able to do the job. So they actually found some of these, or they found one of these, Traced it back somehow, some great police work there to trace it back, and they found a gentleman who was making these. And my first thought was, I was probably making them because someone was interested and they had a client come along and said, can you build me some of these? Sure thing I can, but he actually knew what they were being used for, so Mm. I don't have quite as much sympathy. I'm assuming he was doing it for profit rather than because someone was holding a gun at his head, but very clever design, did a fantastic job until those who were caught. But they also found when they raided this particular gentleman's site where he was making them, several of these in construction or under construction as well. So I can imagine once it started working, which who knows how long it was going for, the drug smugglers said, right, we've got this working now. How many can we have? How much more can we move in terms of the drug quantity? Where else can we go? Today, the Strait of Gibraltar, tomorrow, the English Channel or any of those short water bodies they might want to get it from across from A to B. Obviously, there'd be some limit on the battery life in them, I assume, in terms of how far they'd go. They're not like they're a nuclear sub or anything like that. They've just got a battery in them running them. Yet. Yet. Yeah, that's probably true too. So very clever technology. Very disappointing what they're used for, but very clever technology. There's been some other ones they found as well, some other ones where they've been either in design or trying to do design or trying to get there, and they're carrying different amounts of drugs in terms of the just the, the quantity and the types of drugs being carried. But it's all happening out there in the drug field but this is where technology can be used for good or evil. And still on the subject of drones, anyone with a little bit of experience in flying drones would be aware that there are laws about occupying airspace. Now, while there's a lot of fun to be had and work to be done as well, flying drones comes with strings attached. Like maybe don't fly them around airports? I think that's a given. Matt, the Australian Federal Police have taken exception to a spike in drone activity around the Cairns Airport recently. Yeah, I'm not sure why. I actually had a little hypothesis there. Katy Perry's up at Cairns at the moment. Oh, so right. So whether or not some people will go out there try and do some Katy Perry spotting, yeah, so they put their drones up. the airport, perhaps? Well, no. I don't know. Maybe they're just <laughs> flying. It's actually quite interesting because you've got a five and a half kilometre no-fly zone around every controlled yeah. airport. 
And five and a half kilometres is a fair distance. You don't necessarily think that you're next to an airport if you're five and a half kilometres away. Mm. So I know when I've been playing with one of my drones, I've looked at it and I've used one of the apps. There's many apps available there that can show you where you can't fly and over what areas, over beaches and all sorts of different areas. And when you look at the five and a half k's from an airport, you go, oh, oh, well, I was going to fly it there, but I'm five and a half k's within an airport. And you think, well, surely that's okay, but... Again, if you're sensible, you follow the directions not to fly there. Some of the drones will actually tell you, if you try and take off, it will say, sorry, where you are is within five and a half k's of an airport. Sometimes you've got the ability to override that. Sometimes it just won't let you take off at all. So that's good, but also it's up to the human just to check those areas where they can fly. There was a bit of a spike around Sydney Airport uh, about April this year where there were a a few drones being flown around Sydney Airport. And you just imagine, I mean, imagine an A380 coming in with 400 people on board and a little drone gets sucked up into one of the jet engines and suddenly that plane coming to land relying on four jet engines to control the power coming in and you lose one, I don't think that sounds like a great way to land a plane. And it's also or, or an enormously expensive thing too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I was thinking more of the people, but you're right with the actual expense of it, just because someone went, oh, I wouldn't mind having a look around the airport. That'd be cool, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? So it is a, an issue, but Cairns has been picked on at the moment for whatever reason. But the police, the Australian Federal Police, do track this sort of thing and people do get caught doing it and obviously cop some heavy fines. And I don't know that I've seen anyone... To jail time yet, but if they kept doing it, I imagine that'd be on the cars. But even the fines are going to cop for doing it. So really, it's just check those different apps, check where you can fly. Can I fly? Here is one that I use, which is a pretty simple app. But again, just having a look at that and being sensible about it is probably pretty important. Drones are cool and they can be used for all sorts of cool things. But again, you just have to have some common sense with them. And right at the moment, just steer clear of Cairns Airport, I guess, and Katy Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if you could predict crime and respond before the crime was even committed. Sounds a bit like the plotline from the Tom Cruise flick Minority Report of, um, of 20 years ago. Well, we're not quite there, but one clever team from the University of Chicago has been able to produce some artificial intelligence to predict a crime a week earlier, or sorry, predict crimes a week earlier with a 90% accuracy rate. Matt, this is amazing. What... What are the details behind that? Are we showing our age from every movie we reference is 20 years ago? Oh, we no. reference Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom it Cruise. Just, and <laughs> it doesn't seem like that long ago, but um, yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. Time flies. <laughs> so isn't that something when you get older, you start to always remember things from a long time ago and not what happened yesterday? Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's a symptom. <laughs> but that's not there. us. That's just, we're doing it deliberately, <laughs> folks. So this is quite fascinating. Again, it's that concept where you're taking lots of data and if you've got enough data points from the past, you can start to extrapolate that out and get some sort of accuracy for the future. And unfortunately, this would only work when you've got somewhere that's got lots of crime because mm. you need enough data points. If you've only got the occasional crime, you're not going to get the data set built up that gives you the ability to say this is exactly what's happening. So they used Chicago, a particular area in Chicago, that did have a relatively high crime rate. They fed all these past crimes over previous years, all the locations, the details of all that, into an algorithm they'd been building up to analyse all this. And then they said, we think within a 300 metre area, we can predict the crime that will occur, the type of crime that will occur, and possibly even drill down to the demographics of who would be who would be actually committing those crimes. Right. So they did all that, and then they analysed that, and they came back and they said, we're getting it to within one week in that 300-metre area, 9% accuracy. Unbelievable. Wow. Now, 
a week is a fairly big time frame. 300 metres, a radius of 300 metres is a fairly big area, but you can start to break that down and you can start to put some resources yeah, in different right. areas. Yeah, that's right. You can start to deploy um, mm. some more personnel there. Yeah. Which then throws out your algorithm because then the stats start changing. <laughs> Wrecks everything. One of the things, one of the problems they did have is that they were tending to lean more towards a person that had a darker skin from that demographic. So yeah, in America, profile, yeah, yeah, a Negro demographic. And and again, they were questioned about that, and they said, well, hold on, you've got all these people that are Negroes that are being targeted here with this, so what's the go with that? And they said, well, the AI is just looking at past data, and unfortunately, there were more black people that were committing some of these crimes, so that was where that was coming up. So it was racial profiling, but also it was basing it on that past data. So they had to try and work out a way to not focus so much on that demographic. Otherwise, the demographic was showing that there'd always be dark people committing these crimes, which obviously isn't the case. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of work they've got to do there to try and get it more accurate. But in its initial phase, imagine being able to say at your Monday morning meeting with your police force, right, this week we're going to have some crimes in sections A, B and C. You take your teams out there and just stay around that area, be on the beat in those areas and see if you can prevent those crimes. Now, the problem is then, if you prevented the crimes, were they going to happen in the first place or did you actually prevent them? Do those crimes then move to somewhere else because some of those crims go, well, I was going to go down there, but I saw these police everywhere, so I couldn't go and do it there, so they moved somewhere else. These are all the sliding doors that you don't actually know. So it's a, it's a fascinating concept trying to predict crime in the future. But it's um, at least a step towards uh, defence, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is, yeah. And number crunching. We have lots of data available with a whole range of different things. It's really difficult to do much with that data if you can't if if you just see a bunch of data, you need to make sense of it somehow. You need to build some sort of algorithm, some sort of AI to crunch that. And big data is one of those terms that's often thrown around. Mm. But this is a, a an example that I would see where big data could be utilized if you get the right way to crunch it. And I don't convince it's quite right yet, but going down that path. Yeah, yeah. We're heading towards some good solutions. Yeah. And just like that, the thermos has run dry, but for a tepid dribble of water and a, a few tea leaves at the bottom. We're done for another week. We'll roll up the blanket and stow it away in the linen cupboard until next week and hope for an early spring, perhaps. Matt, thanks for another cracking tech talk. I like the sound of those pothole scanners and uh, the adjusted suspension. Uh, it'll completely reshape the drive to Mudgee. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to go and set up a little radar now. 129 k's an hour for a soccer ball. I reckon I could do that, you know. I reckon I can have a crack yeah, at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> You've set yourself a goal? Yeah, I tried to set up a little radar, <laughs> kick a ball at it. Yeah, my aged frame, surely nothing could go wrong there. I wouldn't pull a calf muscle in it, would I? So. <laughs> oh, well, we'll check in with the hospital later on to see how you went. Yeah, thank you. I'm James Eddy, and I can't wait for the World Cup in November. Thanks for tuning in to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickinson. We look forward to bringing you another episode in a week's time. 